Welcome to Network Capital, Brian. Um, on this platform, we try and demystify people's careers, how they got there. And one of the goals that we've set for our company is to try and look at different uh, areas of excellence, be it business, philosophy, psychology, the creative fields, and try and draw out the mental models that can help people you know, find what they're great at and then pursue it with uh, the best of their head and heart. So with mm -hmm. your career, I was trying to understand, you always want to be a philosopher. How did you get here? I don't think I knew what philosophy was until pretty late in the day, because when I grew up in Seattle in the 1980s and 1990s, I went to a, a public high school that wasn't particularly distinguished. It had a good theater program, and, and I did a lot of theater. But in terms of academic life, we weren't introduced to philosophy. So it wasn't until my first year of college that I saw that that was a, an area of academic study. And I did take to it pretty quickly. I think it represented for me a certain kind of liberty of thought. I was raised in a, in a very conservative, almost fundamentalist religious world where I had all sorts of questions. And in a way I was doing philosophy spontaneously as a child by asking questions of what uh, the pastor was saying and trying to make things add up and um, in, interrogating things, sometimes to the annoyment, annoyance of uh, others in the community. but. I, I wanted things to make sense and I, I pursued questions um, that interested me. And then when I, I found out that there was a whole methodology for doing that, where the idea was just to try to get as clear as possible about what you were arguing and to try to summon the right kind of evidence to reach justified conclusions and that you could apply that to literally any topic, you know, day one of class, does God exist? Let's figure it out. And coming from a, you know, a, a small religious community, that was, that was a breath of fresh air. And uh, you went to Yale. I mean, it's a, it's a wonderful school. Um, did you go to Yale with a clear career hypothesis that I'm going to try and make a career in, in, the, uh, in the field of philosophy or I'm going to try and become an actor? What was your thought process right? like? It's so interesting because I, I haven't thought in explicitly career terms for, for almost all of my career in that uh, for the longest time, yeah, I thought I was going to be an actor and I was going to school because I was curious and I liked learning, but I didn't think that that was a job. I, I don't know, I didn't have examples of that in my family. So my, my parents uh, attended university, but, but didn't uh, finish. And my older siblings took a different path. And so when I went to university, it was as a student really, rather than as somebody who was preparing for some particular professional life. And insofar as I had had any kind of professional experience, it had been in the theater. So I took a year off after high school to act professionally in, in the Seattle theater scene. And when I went to Yale, I did a lot of theater extracurricularly and I was just taking classes out of total intrinsic motivation because I enjoyed them and I, I loved learning and I uh, was being exposed to so many ideas that I hadn't uh, even encountered when I was in high school. I mean, it's really sort of a cliche, you know, I, I, I went from reading, you know, high school level books to suddenly reading Plato and Aristotle and sitting up in the library all night and underlining pretty much every word on the page because now we're discussing like the nature of political systems and you know why should we think that democracy has any particular virtue compared to other possible ways of organizing societies all these thoughts i just never had and so i became totally intoxicated with learning and and it purely intrinsically um and i carried that out for actually many years because uh 
I, I ended up doing two master's degrees in the midst of a theater uh, career, uh, thinking again that I was, you know, I'm just getting, getting some more education in uh, to pursue some learning. But while I was doing the real thing I was doing, which was theater, and it wasn't until I was 30 that I, I basically had a mental breakdown from exhaustion. I was trying to do two things in parallel, you know, studying and writing. And at that point, I was starting to publish professionally in bioethics. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's a separate story to how I got into that. But I was trying to do two things full blown and I just collapsed. And so I, I had to really think about what I was going to pick. And at that point I realized, well, with theater, you're unemployed every three months or something, you know, every time the curtain goes down, you have to find another job and approaching 30, I just thought that doesn't feel like the, the right thing to keep pursuing. And then, you know, getting a PhD at that point was something I felt that I could be prepared for, although I had to figure out which discipline to do it in because I'd been straddling different disciplines as well. Um, so it was a confluence of factors and I, I, it's now been, you know, more than half a decade since I've done any professional theater, but um, I, I did kind of throw my momentum behind the, the academic thing and that's, that's been going pretty well so far. One of the things that I've noticed about you is that you're able to do high intensity work, be it theater, be it, you know, studying philosophy, publishing books in condensed periods of time. Um, how did you manage both theater and philosophy and bioethics and all of those things? Is there something that you did? And I know it ended up in acute exhaustion, but there was a large amount of time where it, where you sort of pushed through. What was it like? That's interesting because I'm now on the other side of that and I have much better mental health than I probably ever had at any prior point in my life. And I'm just as much productive now as I was before, if not more so. And, and yet now I sleep eight hours every night, just about. And, you know, I work a lot. I work most of the hours that I'm awake, but I also love my job. So that's a big part of it. You know, what I, well, like I said before, what I intrinsically like doing is reading and writing and learning and talking to interesting people. If, if I were not getting paid to do it, that's what I would be striving to do anyway. I'd want to get home from whatever my job was and go do those things. Mm -hmm. And so the fact that I'm paid to do what I love to do is a big part of it because every hour that I'm working on something in the evening, sometimes it's frustrating and I'm fighting a deadline and I'm tired, you know, all of that. But for the most part, and on the whole, what I'm doing is what I love to do. Um, and so that's highly motivating, uh, obviously, because it's, it's coming from the inside out rather than the other way around. Before I had this breakdown, I would say that um, a lot of my professional motivation was a fear of disappointing people, which I don't know, goes back to my childhood or something. I'd have to figure out exactly what it was that was motivating me, but it was, I didn't want to let anybody down. And so that was extremely motivating. So even when I was exhausted and even when I wasn't sleeping and even when I was spread too thin, I would sort of feel like, well, if I just push a little harder, I can do right by this person or do right by that person. And that was a very powerful motivation for me. Um, but sometimes I would create a sense of obligation that was far bigger from than what the person actually expected of me. And there were many instances of this where I would be, uh, you know, grappling with a, a paper and, and, and really feeling that I, I had to pour my soul into this and it was due at a certain time and that I'd missed the deadline. And it turned out that, you know, they had other papers in that issue of the journal and they didn't particularly need mine and it was all fine, but I'd worked up into my head, like, you know, everything was resting on this one thing. So a big part of life has been trying to actually calibrate things more accurately, you know, get a sense of what really is urgent and what matters and what requires my specific effort versus what's not as big a deal or what I can let go or delegate. And so I think partly because I've got better at those things, I've managed to uh, sleep more and 
take care of my physical and mental health much more and still be pretty productive. I, this is useful also for me because like you, I pursued theater and um, film production for, for many years. And uh, like you have always tried to manage either the corporate job and a side hustle or now startups and other forms of yeah. uh, writing that I do. And uh, I think a lot of people would resonate with the fact that we don't want to disappoint people we care about or just we don't want to disappoint. Yeah. But uh, then you come to the question that who should you disappoint? Should you disappoint yourself or should you disappoint everybody else? Have you ever tried to uh, you know, straddle with that conundrum? Yeah, I guess there's different ways of potentially disappointing oneself. So one way that I didn't want to disappoint myself was in terms of my sense of integrity. And it's something I, I struggle with because, you know, part of what I do is I study ethics and I study philosophy. So the level one expectation about how things should be isn't always how I think they should be. Sometimes I, you know, my sense of what the right thing is to do might be, you know, part of a conversation with, with others who disagree with me about that. But I do care about trying to do what I think is the right thing to do. And so when I fall short of that standard, that that's really disappointing to myself. But there's another sense in which I, I, I wasn't afraid of disappointing myself, which was I didn't have a lot of self-worth in sense of um, recognizing my value to others for a long time. And again, I don't know exactly how that, that came about that that was the case. But I remember, for example, having a, an epiphany, I don't know, maybe 10 years ago now. But I was realizing that all these people who were asking me to submit papers to their magazines and journals and so forth, were not doing me a favor. They were asking me to submit because they thought I was adding value to their project. And it just never even occurred to me. I always thought, oh, little old me, you know, you want me to write for your, you know, journal? That's, I'm so grateful. I'm just this young scholar. I don't even have a PhD, you know? So my whole frame of mind was that um, I was uh, being given these opportunities and I wanted to make the most of them and not let the person down. But it wasn't about letting myself down. I, I didn't know what that would mean. I didn't have a very strong sense of self in terms of what I intrinsically wanted to do, uh, apart from, you know, in terms of the professional aspects of, of academia. Um, so that, that took a long time to realize that, you know, when, you, when, I, when I realized that the people that I admired, the scholars that I was reading their work and contributing to, to, to the conversation, that they were reading my work too, that, that took me a long time for that to actually register with me. Um, I, I always felt like I was kind of the, upstart or something or the the person who was really an actor who was moonlighting as an academic and one day they were going to find me out that I didn't know what I was doing uh, and it was all you know just by the seat of my pants um, and so you know it's still a work in progress I still because I'm in different disciplines you know sometimes I'm contributing to psychology sometimes to philosophy sometimes to bioethics sometimes I write in sexual health journals sometimes I write in sociology I've published in law journals and so every time I'm I'm stretched beyond my capacities and so I'm constantly aware of the limitations of what I know. And that it makes it hard to ever rest on your laurels and feel like you've somehow got it figured all out. So, I'm, you know, it's, it's a matter of calibration. I, I, I spent a long time not recognizing that I, that I had value to others. That wasn't just them doing a favor. Um, but there's also a sense in which, uh, you know, you are constantly humbled by the limits of your knowledge. And that's sort of the right way to feel because the universe is vast and complicated and, we're finite and you know we can only understand so much. Do you think you're successful? Your CV looks distinguished. You're a philosopher at a leading university. You've published books, which we're gonna talk about shortly. Um, 
But do you feel successful? Do you feel unsuccessful? What does achievement mean to you? Yeah, I would say that um, finishing my PhD was a big deal, partly because, as I say, when I started it, I was in the lowest point of mental health ever in my life. And starting a, a, a huge task like that with, with very diminished, diminished mental capacity is daunting, to say the least. And for the first three or four years, I wasn't sure I would finish. So, you know, and then I slowly got better habits and figured out what I was doing. And, and by the end of it, I, I felt really proud to finish it. And that wasn't all that long ago. That was just really two years ago or so. And then I had worked at Oxford on and off, starting from when I did a master's degree there, like 13 years ago. So I had a longstanding relationship with Oxford and with the, the Center for Practical Ethics. But my first real job uh, that was like a full-time in Oxford type job was after my PhD, which, which was, as I say, not that long ago. But I would say that um, I feel, I guess this is maybe another thing that could be distilled into some kind of advice. Like the place where I'm working now is a place that really uh, appreciates my distinct skill set. So even when I was doing my PhD, I was in a philosophy and a psychology department. Now, most of my publications are actually in bioethics, and philosophers have kind of mixed feelings about bioethics. Some, some, now it's a little too applied, you know, it's not the pure metaphysics or whatever. Um, you know, I like metaphysics, but I was mostly doing bioethics at this point. And then psychologists have never really even heard of bioethics. I mean, so I, you know, I might get a paper in the top bioethics journal and my psychology supervisors would be like, well, anyway, we don't know what that is. You should be publishing in these journals. And so I, I was having a, this crisis of feeling like, you know, I felt like I was contributing something useful to this discipline, but I wasn't in, a, in an environment that fully understood what the value of that was. So I often felt off kilter and a bit of a misfit. Um, now I'm in the center that for, you know, a confluence of reasons, really appreciates interdisciplinarity, it appreciates flexibility, it appreciates reading across uh, different disciplines and sets of ideas and collaborating with people who are, uh, you know, trained differently and, and integrating all that together, which is just how my mind works. So um, I'm in a place where I feel valued. I'm in a place where I feel um, encouraged to explore the things that I find interesting. I'm in a place where I feel like I have trusting relationships. I'm in a place where I feel there's a lot of generative ideas and um, trust and uh, mutual care. I mean, it's just a really good place to be. And um, so I feel successful in that I'm doing what I like to do with people that I admire and trust and, um, and getting paid for it. And I can't think of anything that, that could count as success more than that. Uh, thank you for sharing. It really means a lot uh, that you've been open about your mental health and you know the journey that you've taken. Um, It'll empower many ambitious young professionals that try and figure out what to do with their lives. Um, and we need more people to talk about their journey, not just the destination. So thank you for that. Talk to me about your interest in bioethics. Where did that emerge from? And do you enjoy being um, outside the club that will always have you as a member? Groucho Marx said, when you're in psychology and philosophy, you're thinking about bioethics. When you're in acting, you're thinking about mm -hmm. philosophy. Um, talk to us about that. Yeah, that's really interesting. I remember when I was doing theater, there was a part of me that liked that I had this secret other thing that I was doing that some of my actor friends would talk about, but for the most part, they thought it was a novelty or interesting that I had this academic thing going on. And similarly, when I was, you know, embedded in academic communities, I liked knowing that there was this other world that I knew something about and that I had spent a lot of time in. Um, so there's a sense in which I kind of 
like being a bit on the margins. I don't like to put too much at stake in any particular way of being or one particular institution or one particular community because, you know, partly that's how people get polarized and they 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 figure out, well, here's my team and we're we have these beliefs and this is what we do and these are our methodologies and then everything else becomes the enemy. And I, I'd rather figure out how to integrate between ideas and build relationships across sectors rather than um, have an antagonistic kind of attitude toward people or ideas. So, you know, that's true politically, it's true academically. I, I don't wanna, you know, there's this essay by Scott Alexander that I remember reading many years ago called Keep Your Identity Small. And what he was saying is um, once I decide, once I, once I apply a label to a certain set of beliefs and I say, okay, I'm a Republican or I'm a Democrat or I'm a, I don't know, you know, I have, uh, I, I'm a psychologist uh, or whatever. Then, you know, if anybody criticizes, say, psychology methods or they, you know, a Republican criticizes a Democrat, then it's a personal attack. And so then you have to, you know, your ego requires that you then defend it rather than learn from it. So, you know, I'm pretty progressive in my political commitments, but, I, you know, if a Republican has a good idea or, or conservative person, let's say, um, I would want to learn from that. Why would I not? I mean, if it's a good idea, it's a good idea. And obviously I don't have, you know, no one political party has a monopoly on good ideas. Same thing with methodologies, you know. Um, so somebody has a critique of psychology. There's a whole bunch of critiques coming on in psychology uh, over the last 10 years with this whole replication crisis thing. And I found that fascinating. You know, I was trained in the very specific area of psychology that was getting the most heat for problems with methodology and with replication. And so then I pivoted and did a philosophy science degree where I stepped back and I tried to stand outside of the fray and figure out what was going on. And then I, you know, I accepted a lot of the criticisms of the methodologies in which I had specifically been trained. Um, and, and I'd much rather do that than sort of just be fighting against all critics all the time. Um, so, so I like sometimes being a little bit outside the club and I don't like being um, in, in, in the middle of any particular stream where I don't feel like I can get out if I need to or, or shift or, or accommodate or be nimble or whatever it is. Um, there was another part to your question that I think I've probably already lost a thread on. Bioethics, yeah, of course. Yes. Okay, so how did I get into bioethics? Um, that was really a matter of chance. So I went to uh, Oxford to do a master's degree in experimental psychology. My undergraduate degree was in cognitive science uh, with a concentration in philosophy. So I was originally a philosophy major and then I was taking all these other classes in neuroscience and psychology and so forth. So I kind of cobbled them together into a cognitive science degree. Uh, and then I, I went to Oxford for this experimental psychology degree and I happened to you know, run into Julian Savalescu, who's the chair of practical ethics, a prominent bioethicist at Oxford. And the way that happened was totally a fluke. So my undergraduate research project uh, at Yale, my senior thesis, I went to, I got to Oxford before I'd had a chance to do anything with that. So I ended up presenting it as a poster at the British Psychology Society meeting in Glasgow, as I recall, just like a little poster in the basement somewhere. I mean, it was totally obscure, um, but for some reason, a reporter must have seen seen the title of the piece on a brochure or something and came and interviewed me about it. And then this went and became a viral phenomenon in British media at the time. Mm -hmm. So it was covered in all the different newspapers. And what my study showed basically was that incidental exposure to no smoking signs seems to trigger craving for cigarettes in smokers because our unconscious mind doesn't process negation very well. So if I say, don't think of a pink elephant, I've of course just put the idea of a pink elephant into your mm -hmm. mind. If I say, don't smoke here, you know, it's serving a legal purpose. It's telling me what I am not permitted to do. 
but psychologically it's just you know it's showing me a cigarette there's a red mm -hmm. line through it but that doesn't stop me from thinking it's there and now i'm thinking of a cigarette and if i wasn't mm -hmm. thinking of a cigarette 10 seconds ago now i am so if i like cigarettes i'm probably going to want to go have one now um so that was the finding and i don't know maybe it was ironic or something like that and so it, it became a news thing and uh, Professor Savalescu happened to read one of these news articles and wrote a blog post for the Practical Ethics blog, basically saying, um, practical ethics needs moral psychology. And the reason why it needs it is because we may have a, a policy that we think is an ethical policy, but if it doesn't jive with people's intuitions, or if it doesn't um, uh, comport with their motivations in the way that's intended, the policy might be backfiring. It might make things worse than they started out. Uh, and and so I was really pleased and honored that this famous professor had written about my my study. And I remember I emailed him and um, just said, you know, thank you for writing about this this paper of mine. Um, the newspaper articles have got some details wrong. So here's just the actual paper. I, I literally sent him my senior thesis from my undergrad years. And he took the time to read it um, and invited me out to lunch because he thought it was well written and a cleverly designed study. And he was interested in moral psychology and uh and and the relationship to practical ethics and so we we just hit it off because our we have a similar style and that we're interdisciplinary and we're curious and we just mm -hmm. really got along so it was just like that and then he invited me to a conference that was on shaping moral psychology which was kind of at the interface of moral psychology and bioethics which again i didn't know anything about i don't even know if i'd heard about bioethics at that point so i started to read some of his papers including his paper on procreative beneficence and then I remember getting into sort of an argument, uh, you know, a friendly argument with him about it because I thought that uh, it was wrong and I wanted to tell him all the reasons why I thought it was wrong. And I liked that he in appreciated the criticism and wasn't offended and was happy to have an argument about it, which I, I always appreciate when people are willing to just talk through the ideas. Mm -hmm. And so, um, you know, it just kind of proceeded in that way for a while. And then he invited me to, to stay on to do a, a defil. Um, but I still wanted to be an actor. So I wrestled with that decision for a long time and I said, no, and I uh, decided I was going to go be an actor. And he said, well, what if I hire you to work on a, on, on a project with me and that you can do as a part-time long distance research assistant, basically. And so you can go do your acting thing and just research uh, this topic and send me a, a paper every once in a while and we'll call it a deal. And so, you know, he made up some fancy contract that probably didn't even exist to allow me to get to, to pursue theater and do research on the side. And so that project was what turned into the book, uh, the Love Drugs book that you um, recently read. Uh, and, and so- thoroughly enjoyed it. Well, thank you. Yeah, I mean, it took eight, eight years to, to write it in between all these you know, acting gigs and part-time stuff and traveling between countries and so forth. But it's amazing that it came out right around the time that people are generally talking about psychedelics and so forth. Because when we started, it was, wasn't really on, it wasn't, it wasn't in the New York Times, you know, we were, building this literature from going back to the 1980s when mdma assisted couples counseling used to be common and we were piecing this together and then it just took me so darn long to get the book out that when we finally were ready to release it it kind of hit its moment i think in a way and it's done really well um the book starts with a little uh, introduction to an uh, article in the atlantic and what specifically about that article got everyone interested uh, in the book and the topic, even if it is to critique you and your co-author. Yeah, so the the article that you're referring to, I think, was an interview that um, Ross Anderson did with with me and um, Julian and Anders Sandberg, who wrote some of the early papers with us that that turned into the book. And um, 
I think a lot of things uh, caught people's attention. One is the idea that something as lofty as love might be even amenable to chemical manipulation. You know, there's all these ideas from fairy tales about love potions and so forth, but they're intriguing in part because they're implausible and they're magical and they're mysterious and they don't really exist. There aren't any love potions. But we were trying to use information from neuroscience and psychopharmacology to connect the dots between what it feels like to be in love with someone and how love is theorized or understood in different cultures and what's going on in our brains. And the idea is, unless you think love is totally separate from what's going on biologically, then you know it seems like you might be able to intervene or influence it or shape it in some way through uh, biotechnological manipulation. And you know we started out a little bit speculative, almost science fiction about this, but then what I quickly started to realize is that there are a lot of medications that are commonly taken today, including selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, SSRIs, which are commonly prescribed for depression and, and anxiety, that um, interact with our neurochemistry that's relevant to our romantic bonding and our uh, feelings of care for others and our own emotional life. And there's obviously drugs that can influence our libido, testosterone can change our libido very easily. So all the different aspects of love, libido and um, uh, attraction and attachment, all uh, you know, are, are fairly well understood and there are common medications that interact with those systems. But the thing is that when these medications are trialed, they're only studying in terms of the effects that the, the, the scientists are expecting to find. So if you trial a drug to treat depression, you just wanna see whether it affects depression. It doesn't even occur to you to measure all these other things it might be doing, like how's your relationship going? Or you know, what, what, did you fall out of love with your spouse of 20 years? If you don't ask those questions, you, you're not in a position to answer them. And so slowly you start to get this evidence build up from anecdotes and case reports and theoretical reasons for thinking that this might be happening and so forth. And so partly what we said is, regardless of love potions and MDMA and all that stuff, we should just be studying current common drugs in terms of their relational effects. We should, we should not only think of them in terms of what we have labeled them as. So we call SSRIs antidepressant medication, but actually their antidepressant effect isn't very good. Um, you, you might as well call them a libido killing medication because they have a very high risk of diminishing your libido. Why don't we call them that? Because that's not what we intend to use them for. But in some respects, they're more reliable at doing that for many people than they are at actually helping with depression. So, um, you know, those are one of a number of lessons that kind of cropped up over the many years of working on this project. It's very easy to misunderstand the message of the book early on, as the journalists love to pick on a word or two or a sentence and say that, hey, these philosophers are trying to tell us to have a pill to solve our love problems. Yep. But I don't think that's what you're going at. So to a beginner, could you explain the thesis of your book and what's the right way to think about MDMA and other chemicals that are now gaining popular cultural um, language, so to speak? Yeah, so there's a conservative thesis, which I just quickly went over, which is that at minimum, we should study the drugs that are already being widely prescribed to make sure they aren't harming, actively harming our relationships or to find out when they are. For some people, they might help them. For others, they might harm them. But we should study that rather than just leave this to anecdotes. So I think most people could get on board with that. You know, if we're going to be giving people medications uh, that there's good reason to think probably are affecting people's relationships in good or bad ways, we should try to understand those effects so that we can avoid 
the worst of the harms that these drugs may be presenting us. And we go through all sorts of specific harms that they might bring. The more controversial thesis would be that once we better understand how these drugs interact with our romantic neurochemistry and our relational context and our values in society, it might well be that we could find that some of these drugs used in certain kinds of ways might help our relationships in a way that's more or less predictable if we you know, get a handle on the right circumstances. And so to make that more, more plausible, and instead of just a speculative thing, we turn to historical literatures of psychiatrists um, using MDMA as an aid to couples counseling back in, in the 1980s. And you know there weren't a whole bunch of well-controlled studies at the time, but there were um, case series of pretty radically transformed relationships where people would say, you know, I've been dealing with these grudges in this relationship for 10 years, and I was um, unable to deal with my own emotions, and I had these bad habits and so forth, and talk therapy wasn't really helping because I was just getting defensive. Uh, but under the influence of this drug in a safe environment with a sufficiently skilled uh, guide, I found that I was able to approach these emotions, work through things, the effects of talk therapy were enhanced. Um, so. So we, we go one step beyond that and we say, all right, most people think that talk therapy is an acceptable way of working on one's relationship. You know, if you learn how to deal with the, the, the um, barriers to a, a successful relationship, then, then that's, that's gotta be a good thing. Well, there's some evidence that these drugs, if used in a certain way, can simply enhance the effects of talk therapy. They make a thing that you probably agree is an okay thing to do more effective at what it's meant to do with you know relatively few side effects and so that was kind of a next step along the way to our argument and around the time that we were proposing this the so-called psychedelic renaissance was then coming into the mainstream and so we moved from talking about um, studies from the 1980s to just drawing on contemporary scientific evidence and there we have a, a bit of a better sense of um, mechanistically what the drugs are doing and why it is that they might have these effects so for example mdma assisted psychotherapy has now been fairly well studied as a means of treating post-traumatic stress disorder. And um, a very similar thing is going on with PTSD as is going on in some relationships where, um, you know, relationships are, can be traumatic themselves in the same way or analogous to other types of traumas that we may be exposed to, you know, the, the depth of the pain that we can experience and the violations of trust and the deep emotional um, dysfunction that we can fall into can make it so that we can no longer see our partner in the way that we once did. We have built up all these mental models of them that are distorted and rigid. And uh, we have a hard time accessing some of our own emotions because we're in survival mode or we have all these compensatory mechanisms or defense mechanisms or whatever. And so when we go to talk therapy, we may over a long time be able to work through some of these things, but sometimes we're just so um, disturbed by certain aspects of a relationship that we can't we, we can't even go there into the place that we need to do to productively work on the relationship. Same thing with a you know, post-traumatic stress disorder. If I'm in the war and I see a bunch of bloodshed and killing and I'm completely traumatized and I come back and you say, okay, we're gonna now talk about your time in Baghdad. Um, no, we're not gonna talk about my time in Baghdad. There's no, I can't even go there. I'm just gonna shut down. So talk therapy isn't helpful. So there's a real analogy here. So what does MDMA do? Well, uh, and MDMA causes the release of serotonin in very high levels. Uh, it sort of floods the brain with serotonin and keeps them um, in, in play uh, between uh, synapses. And 
while you're in that kind of serotonin flush state of mind, what seems to happen is that your automatic hair trigger fear response is directly suppressed. And so, whereas you might have this overreactive defensiveness or fear that comes up when you're confronted with a potentially disturbing experience or thought or memory or whatever, if you can just directly dial that down for a minute and subjectively feel safer in your environment, which of course has to be a safe environment. So, you know, there, there's a context here that always has to be considered. It's never just the effect of the drug. It's the drug times the context times the people involved and so forth. So if you are in a safe environment and you can take a drug which helps you really feel safe in that environment and suppresses your automatic defense mechanisms so that when somebody says, tell me about your time in Baghdad, you don't freak out and you instead can go back and talk about those memories, then you're in a position where you can begin to work through them, whereas before you might not have been able to do so. And so, um, you know, part of the point that we make in the book is that there's pretty good evidence that some of these drugs can have truly transformative effects for some people who have had otherwise untreatable PTSD or major depression or whatever. You know, the, the evidence is still coming in and it's complex to interpret, but there are some clear cases where people are transformatively healed by having drug-assisted psychotherapy. And so the question we pose in the book is, does that mean we should then only think of these drugs as medicine? Do we have to identify a disorder that somebody has and make sure that we, you know, only have doctors prescribing these drugs and so forth? Or can we step back a little bit and say, well, what's the point of treating a mental disorder? It's to improve somebody's life. If it didn't do that, there'd be no point in doing it. Who would, why would you even invest the time in treating right. a mental disorder if it didn't improve your well-being in some way? So if that's the goal, we should ask, are there ways of using these interventions that improve people's well-being, whether or not they have a disorder? And the reason for that is, is pretty important. So there's a long history within psychopharmacology of trying out drugs for different kinds of things and finding that they may not help in the way that you intended, but they might have some other effect that seems beneficial. And so if you want to market this drug, you can't just say, well, it seems to have some beneficial effects. You have to talk about it as a treatment. You have to call it medicine and medicine conceptually has to be treating a disease or a disorder. So then what you have is a strong tendency to pathologize people, to think of human life in terms of disease categories. But we propose that there might be some instances where you can skip that step of making everybody think of themselves as infinitely disordered in all these different ways, just so they can have access to certain kinds of drug-mediated experiences, to say, what if it were okay to have a drug-mediated experience that was justified on the basis that it was reasonably expected to make your life better in some sense, at you know, costs that you were willing to, to shoulder, and that would be the end of the analysis. You don't have to first call it medicine. What if you called it an enhancement? Now, this takes us into a whole big debate in bioethics that's been going on for 40 years since Prozac came out, basically. Yeah. Um, and so in some respects, we're you know, revisiting some of those old conceptual categories. But strikingly, what's happening out with psychedelics in, in particular, and also psychedelics have been used outside of medicine for a long time, or they may be considered medicine in a traditional indigenous sense, um, but they're not you know, treating a disease in the Western contemporary uh, clinical sense. And so there's a long history of many societies using these substances in so certain social contexts for what might be described as spiritual purposes mm -hmm. or communal purposes or something like that. So, you know, once we ste step outside the very narrow lens of the legitimizing mechanism of contemporary Western medicine, and we think about the way that consciousness altering substances have been used in many different societies for, you know, thousands of years in some cases to enhance the well-being of the people in the community without necessarily bringing in categories of pathology, then we realize that there actually are long traditions and frameworks within which these kinds of experiences could, could happen and be understood. 
And now just in the last year or two, the state of Oregon in the United States is, uh, has changed its laws so that this very kind of thing is now legal. So they're creating these, they're not clinics exactly, they're kind of like centers or, I don't know, spaces within which people can have guided psychedelic experiences without any pretense to it being a medical experience. The idea is it's sort of like a cognitive liberty or pharmacological freedom type argument where it's like these drugs, if used in a certain way, uh, are reasonably safe. So, you know, they have serious risks that can sometimes happen. If you have schizophrenia or you're prone to psychosis or something like that, these drugs can have uh, profoundly bad effects if they're not um, handled in the right way. But, you know, under the right circumstances with appropriately pre-screened individuals with an appropriate and skilled guide, um, the, the drugs are not, not typically um, physiologically dangerous. They're not uh, typically habit forming. They're um, far less dangerous in many respects than say alcohol, which we use widely. Or nicotine. And so the idea, or nicotine, yeah. So, um, you know, the idea is, uh, well then, you know, and people use marijuana this way too, right, as well, which is, you know, used to be only a medical thing. So there's medical marijuana for a long time. And that was the big progressive move in drug policy was to talk about medical marijuana. Right. But, you know, it was always a bit of a, a nudge, nudge, wink, wink kind of scenario because everybody knew that people use marijuana not simply because it's treating their back pain or whatever, but because they enjoy it. And same reason why people use alcohol. They don't use alcohol as medicine. They use it because, I don't know, it's enjoyable. And it, it you know, lubricates certain social interactions in a way that people value. And so, you know, societies have always known that there are substances that may be valued in certain ways apart from the, the model of medicine. So we can have a whole conversation about the war on drugs and how certain substances come to be vilified and stigmatized and so forth. But that's kind of a tired conversation that, that would be its own podcast, I guess, to say anything interesting there. Um, so this enhancement model that we proposed in our book is now being you know, implemented. I don't think these people read our book. I don't know, maybe some of them did. But the thing that we propose is now being manifested in reality in the state of Oregon and also in Colorado now, uh, where psychedelics are going to be made available or um, decriminalized at least, yeah. and in some cases fully le legalized for what used to be called recreational use. And I, I don't say that because it's trivializing. You know, you either had medical drugs or recreational drugs, which means just you're having fun at a party or something like that. Mm. But the thing about psychedelics and, you know, marijuana to some extent, depending on how people use it, is it's not just fun like shits and giggles. It's, it's that it can allow a person to explore their own identity and altered states of consciousness and you know, it, it can have kind of metaphysical implications if you're, you know, in the right state of mind. And um, it can have aesthetic qualities. And all these things are things that are that may be valuable in their own right, apart from just kind of a, a trivial, you know, fun time at a, at a club or something like that, which is, I think, what the, the stereotype is that people have. And the reticence of policymakers um, about these drugs stems from what? Is there not a strong enough lobby? Is there not an ethics institute that has studied the pros and cons, um, is it something else? Because when well, you you're think finding of that mm -hmm. uh, MDMA okay, and other, uh, other drugs, it's mostly considered like a party drug. And the war on drugs seem to be against, we will not let people run amok with these things. So somehow this nuance has been disappearing from public discourse. I think the nuance is sort of coming back into public discourse. From the 1980s to the 1990s, at the height of the start of the war on drugs, that's when you just have the just say no to drugs. There's the 
good drugs, which are the ones that pharmaceutical companies brand as medicine and have doctors give you. And then there's the bad drugs that will just kill you, basically. Um, and then there's alcohol and nicotine, which we aren't going to talk about too much because they aren't really medicine, but we've been using them for a long time. And um, we tried prohibition and it didn't work. And so, you know, basically all other drugs were just considered bad drugs. And that's what I grew up with. That's what I thought. I grew up thinking, well, there's the okay drugs that are medicine, which you don't even call drugs. You call them medicine. And then drugs are bad. Just say no to drugs. Um, nowadays, you're starting to see, you know, even conservative politicians like, uh, what's his name? Rick, somebody, uh, Rick Perry, the former governor of Texas, who's now cast his lot behind um, psychedelics for treatment of uh, war veterans dealing with PTSD. And uh, John Boehner, who used to be the conservative um, Speaker of the House in the United States, is similarly heavily invested in some of these um, uh, marijuana and psychedelic companies. So, you know, some of it's probably cynical and some of it's probably sincere. It's hard to, to know. But I think that there are actually rapidly changing attitudes toward psychedelics in particular. In fact, I have some research that some colleagues and I have under review at a journal right now where we show, um, you know, very high levels of moral acceptability for the use of psilocybin in particular, the ingredient in so-called magic mushrooms, under appropriately supervised conditions for either treatment or enhancement. So we explicitly ask people about the situation in which a person does basically what's now possible in Oregon. And we find that both liberals and conservatives or progressives and conservatives or however you wanna slice the, the pie, in the United States, in you know, at the time of the survey, which was within the last year, um, you know, when given just a little bit of information about the safety profile of the drugs and what we actually know about them, have like overwhelming support for it being morally acceptable, um, which is quite surprising. And that wouldn't have been true, I would say, ten years ago. And lots of uh, influential people, from podcasters to investors, are now you know spending their money on funding some of this these research and setting up these institutes. And I think it'll be a good idea to per perhaps uh, uh, have a public uh, discussion based on data. Um, where we discuss the limits and the upsides of potentially these drugs that could change the way. So hopefully that will come to uh, fruition soon enough. Um, you're a philosopher. People ask you all sorts of questions. But I was very surprised when a lady sent you uh, a message in a different language discussing her uh, marriage. So could you tell us why did she write to you and what was the essence of uh, this esoteric message? I think that uh, she must have come across perhaps the Atlantic interview that we talked about, which, um, yeah, she was speaking in Eastern European language, and I can't even remember which one it was, um, partly because we changed the details a bit for anonymous purposes of anonymity in the book, and I don't remember which was the mm -hmm. true one and which was the changed detail. But um, she she read that we were talking about anti-love drugs, drugs that might you know degrade or impair a romantic connection that might make you, so to speak, fall out of love with someone. And she said, um, I need this drug. I think she thought it was a, you know, a pill that was available and that I might even be able to prescribe it to her. And she was desperate because as she said, I'm in an abusive relationship with a misogynistic partner who uh, I, sh I shouldn't be with. And I know that I shouldn't be with him. And yet at the same time, um, I can't seem to tear myself away. I have this visceral bond with him. I'm drawn toward him. I'm attached to him in a certain kind of a way. And if I could just break that attachment through some kind of biotechnology, through some kind of anti-love drug or cure for love, mm -hmm. then I would be able to shape my emotions in such a way that I could 
act in accordance with what my sort of higher level goals are and what I know is right for me. And, you know, this is a reasonably common situation in that you have people who know they're in a bad relationship or you just think of somebody who's addicted to some substance, you know, they know they should stop taking it, but when it comes right down to it and their behavior and what they end up doing, it follows some other path. And so, you know, there are drugs that try to directly interrupt some of those kinds of um, processes. Uh, so kind of drugs to treat addiction, <laughs> drugs to treat addiction to other drugs um, with the idea that, you know, willpower enough sometimes isn't going to cut it. And so we argue in another part of the book where we talk about anti-love drugs, that um, there might be some situations where somebody's in an objectively bad relationship, which they recognize is bad for them. So we want to try to avoid situations where people are being forced out of relationships in a paternalistic way. So they know they need to leave the relationship. The relationship is one that they should leave. And yet they're finding that they're not able to do so, um, at least in large part, because they are irresistibly drawn or almost addicted to this person. And if there was a way to soften or weaken that feeling so that they could leave the relationship and set up their lives elsewhere and kind of start over, that that could be a, a morally acceptable and possibly desirable thing to do. Um, we did get some criticisms for that in an early paper, which we address in the book. Um, but basically, some people rightly said, look, a lot of people, especially women in situations where they're financially dependent on a man who abuses them, may be stuck in a relationship, not because they somehow can't get over their attachment, but because they're financially dependent or because they're afraid for the, their children's safety or whatever it is. And so we, we fully acknowledge that. And that's certainly true. Um, and it's also true that in addition to those kinds of considerations, people form these attachments within the context of abuses, abusive relationships that, that would be good for them to uh, be able to uh, diminish if they could. And so we try to zero in on those cases where that's what somebody might want to do. Well, that was fascinating. Um, you know, what she asked and the kind of response uh, you gave. Uh, tell me about the good enough marriage. What does that mean and how does that connect with uh, love drugs? Yeah. So, um, you know, at least in contemporary Western liberal societies that are organized profoundly around a, a norm or a priority for autonomy, there's this idea that basically um, we should enter into relationships at will and leave them at will. And if we're unhappy in a relationship, then we should get out of it. Now, there's some tension and friction here because if I go to all the trouble of standing up in front of a community and saying, I hereby publicly swear to stay in this relationship through thick and thin, we all should want words like that to mean something. Hmm. Otherwise, you know, just might as well give up and not trust anything that anybody says. So if, we, if we're going to ceremonially declare, and by the way, we should be very careful about doing that. We shouldn't just assume that that's what we should do. If we are going to say such a thing, we should really mean it. And we should have done the homework and preparation to make sure that that's something that we can live up to. So there, sh it sh there should be some friction in exiting a relationship that is framed in terms of a, a vow or a promise to stick with a person through thick and thin. Now, obviously, there has to be some limit to that. So we don't suggest uh, at all that people should stay in relationships that are abusive or stay in relationships that involve you know, constantly being um, demeaned or whatever. You know, um, people have to be able to leave relationships that are, that are bad. But what about the relationships that aren't really that bad, but they aren't really good either? That's the good enough marriage or a gray marriage as we mm. sometimes talk about it. Now, in that case, um, we focus primarily on the case of marriages of that kind in which there are young children involved who um, would benefit from having 
their parents around and not being shuttled back and forth between houses and so forth. Now, the, the, the sociological literature on the effects of divorce on children's welfare is, as you can imagine, highly politicized, and it's actually quite difficult to get down to the bottom and figure out what the strong evidence implies. And it's also context specific. So if a couple is um, full of contempt toward one another and their daily interactions are um, thick with uh, these negative undertones, young children will pick up on that. And it's probably not good for them to be around that all the time. So it may well be better for them if the parents separate. Um, but there are some cases where the parents would like to bring some sort of love and harmony back into the relationship. They're not entirely ready to let the whole thing go. And they do see the welfare of their children as at least one additional consideration that they think rightly weighs into their decision-making. And so again, we try to zoom in on the most promising case and say, look, some relationship should end. We grant that even when their children involved, totally get it. But what about the relationships where there's something there, something worth pursuing or working on or striving toward? where if the relationship could be genuinely improved in a certain kind of a way and that feeling of love and companionship and collaboration could be brought back into the relationship and that's expected to uh, redound to the welfare of children who depend on you for their development then there would be a strong reason to try to improve the relationship by some means or another and then what we say is well if one of the ways that's available to you to improve your relationship that's going to be more effective than other ways given certain um, assumptions is drug-assisted psychotherapy, then we don't say you must undergo drug-assisted psychotherapy, but that there's a strong reason for you to consider the idea. Um, and so, you know, and we don't have to convince people to do this. There's tons of people who would be eager to do this. And I've heard from a lot of them and a lot of them write to me and they say, you know, I'm in exactly that kind of marriage. I, it's not that I hate my partner. Um, you know, we do still laugh together sometimes. We have a shared history. We have a shared value. We have shared finances. We have a shared house. It's just that we don't feel any kind of passion for each other anymore. And we um, are, have a sort of boredom that's set in and a sort of grayness that's just taken over our lives. And I don't want to live this way for, for the rest of my life. So do I, do I have to get a divorce? Is that my only option? Or can, is there a Hail Mary I can try here to actually you know, bring back some intimacy back into my relationship? And so we propose that you know, there may be something worth trying in the reasonably near future. And now, in fact, MDMA-assisted therapy for couples, which again, we were hypothesizing about in our book, um, is now, you know, there's people trying to set that up uh, again as of the last year. So this is very quickly changing. Now, you know, uh, at the last uh, psychedelic conference in Denver last month, uh, some of my colleagues who were there said the sex and relationship therapy aspects of the conference were the most popularly attended ones. And, you know, I feel proud to, to know that we were ahead of the curve there, that we were arguing that this is uh, uh, an aspect that will have to be seriously considered, you know, starting back in 2012 or something like that. Well, I hope you succeed and there's more research on that because lots of people would find it insightful. And do you, do you feel that uh, now that you have a clear sense of your research, the direction that you're going in, uh, you, after so many adventures, know exactly where you're going, what your career plan is, and you feel that you've now, quote unquote, arrived? Well, I don't think there's any such thing as arriving as a curious person. You're always kind of looking over the over the parapet at the next thing. Um, I would say that there are some habits or insights that feel pretty stable or central to me, and it really has a lot to do with basically relationship building. I find that cultivating relationships with people who are trustworthy 
and kind. I mean, there's a lot of smart people who are jerks and I just have no interest in working with them because I have really smart people who are lovely. And so I have a lot of lovely colleagues and I, I feel deeply grateful to, you know, go to a conference and get to spend time with them and have a beer and know that we have each other's backs. And when one of us is having, you know, some difficult family issue or the other one will come in and help, you know, I've got this colleague, I was having a friend of mine was really sick and I had to take some time off. And I had all these students that I was mentoring and trying to, to help with various projects. And this dear colleague of mine, I'll just say his name, Ivar uh, Hanakainen is a really wonderful person. Basically just, you know, with all the stuff going on in his life, pretty much started, you know, mentoring all these different students of mine to make sure that their projects were going along. He's at a different university. He's not, he has no responsibility toward these students, but he knew that I cared about their well-being and I wanted them to be able to continue succeeding. And I was just emotionally overburdened with what was going on with my friend. And so I'm really embedded in a network of people like that. You know, Ivar's a, a really good example, but there's a lot of people like that. And so um, I want to do that. I want to build relationships with people who are decent and kind and curious and uh, support each other and have integrity. And, you know, especially in the scientific field, I think there's some people who treat it like a game. You know, it's like, how do you get the next publication? Or maybe if you massage the data a little bit, you can get a publishable result. And you know, uh, I don't have any interest in that. I, I really love working with people who say, well, that result is a messy result. I guess, you know, we can try to publish it or we just try something else, but that's what the data say. Um, and uh, that's that's a really nice place to be in too. I like I like being in, in those kinds of environments. So um, yeah, I would say more, more of the same because once you have the procedure, right? When you have good relationships, you have good habits, you have uh, supportive colleagues, you have a healthy, non-toxic work environment, then you know those are the major pieces that have got to be in place. And there's a sense of success or having arrived in that sense. But then the, the content and what you're exploring and the ideas that you pursue and the innovations that you try out, those things are always changing. And so you never feel like you're, you're spinning your wheels. I am truly sorry to hear about your friend, but I know that wherever he is right now, he'd be very proud of you for writing this book. So uh, before... Before anything else, I just want to hear if there's a, um, if there's a message that you'd like to share for people who might be you know going through a difficult circumstance, who might be going through a difficult time in their relationship. Um, what's your advice to them? Well, yeah. One thing that that we stress in this book is that we don't have all the answers and that we can only offer heuristics and, and reasons that people can consider. So I think sometimes when you read books about relationships, they end up having this self-help vibe where it's like these three simple tips and then your relationship will be resolved. And it's like, we don't, we don't purport to do that. We try to analyze cases that we think are realistic and complex. And we try to say, here's some reasons in favor of this kind of outcome. Here's some reasons in favor of that kind of outcome. We try to provide people with tools that they can use to make sure they're being honest with themselves and honest with their partner and facing the reality of their situation. Um, we try to allow people to see things not in terms of black and white, but that there are shades of gray. It's not always obvious what the right thing is to do in a, in a situation where there are competing interests that have to be managed. Um, it can be helpful to talk to a therapist. There are people who have expertise in relationships and most of us don't. And in a way, I think that's, that's an indictment of, of the culture because, um, you know, 
there's hardly anything more important to our well-being and our flourishing as humans, as the kinds of creatures that we are, than being situated within healthy and positive relationship networks. And yet we learn almost nothing about how to create those. Um, you grow up in school and you learn re about reading and writing and arithmetic. You don't learn about what a healthy relationship looks like. And when you see relationships, it's typically in the movies. But what's striking about that is that movies literally are drama. They show you relationships that are um, not healthy. If you just saw a healthy relationship, it wouldn't be a very interesting movie, you know? People who just wake up every morning and are just so full of affirmation for one another and are really promoting each other's well-being and so forth. It's like, who would want to watch that? So what you see are toxic relationships. And then you send, you, you, and then you get intense emotion, which is really grips your attention. But the thing is, then people start to conflate intense emotion for love, where they think love is all about the wrestling and the screaming and the fighting and the making up and you know going through these cycles of despair and intensity and joy and ecstasy and all that other stuff. And it's like, um, you know, a good relationship can involve all of those extremes, but we don't have modeled for us, um, yeah, the, the the main skills that are required to have the relationship. And you know, I guess that would be a whole podcast to try to talk through some of those things that I picked up partly through my research, partly through trial and error and just trying to live in this world. And I certainly don't have all the answers, but to the extent that we feel like we have something, uh, anything approximating wisdom to share, we try to embed it within the pages of this book, uh, the book. And I think um, some people have found it helpful to that end. Thank you, Brian. If you really succeed um, in the long run with your research, with, uh, um, with everything that you're trying to advance with respect to relationships, what do you think the world looks like 10 years from now, 20 years from now, when these things have perhaps become more mainstream? I'll riff on a theme that uh, I'm taking from, from Julian Savalescu. So he, he, he talks about um, climate change, poverty, existential risk, and so forth. And he says, you know, what's the cause of all these things? And people come up with various answers. And he says, his answer is psychology. You know, the reason why we struggle with climate change is because we have a hard time envisioning the distant future and our, you know, moral psychology that developed in the ancient Pleistocene is ill-equipped for the world that we live in. And so I agree with him about the psychology part, but our psychology is fundamentally a social psychology. It's a relational psychology. Our minds developed within a social context to basically um, have certain kinds of cooperative relationships function properly so that we could survive and hopefully not only survive, but but even flourish. And so, you know, if we had uh, healthy relationships, not only at the interpersonal level with the people in our immediate environment, but healthy relationships with our fellow humans, even ones who are far away and healthy relationships between political leaders and so forth, you know, anybody can turn on the TV and see a lot of politicians who um, uh, are not advancing the interests of the country and um, you know, don't seem happy and are somehow working through their own psychodramas in ways that are often very destructive and involve corruption and a lot of um, uh, hits to their integrity and so forth. But I think, you know, if you have good relationships, you don't have any reason to do those things. Uh, you, you're, you're able to, you know, approach each relationship with love and with a spirit of cooperativeness, with a desire to leave everybody better off if you can. And if, if, if we could cultivate a lot of those kinds of relationships, I do think that some of the big picture, political, existential, global challenges would, um, would undoubtedly be ameliorated to some extent. 
Is there anything, Brian, that I should have asked you that I didn't, or any parting words that you have for people listening to this episode? I guess I'll end with um, a note of caution, I guess. So, you know, some of the researchers who were at the forefront of trying to bring psychedelics and MDMA into the mainstream through medicalization, like Roland Griffiths and my dear colleague, David Yaden, who's been working with Roland Griffiths and some others, they are getting to a point where they realize they've almost been too successful. They've managed to get you know, buy-in from all these um, uh, government gatekeepers. They've managed to um, really change attitudes in the general public and so forth. And now what they wanna share as a message, which I wanna amplify, which is these drugs are not panaceas. Uh, they uh, can have uh, radically bad consequences for some people, if, especially if used you know, in uh, certain ways rather than others, um, especially if the person isn't adequately prepared for the experience, especially if it's happening underground and mixed with other drugs and so forth. So, you know, these are extremely powerful technologies and they can be transformatively good for some people. And I personally know some people for whom they have been devastating to the point where the people see no reason to continue living. They have no sense of identity. Their sense of self is fractured and so forth. Um, some people have not just a bad trip, but like long-term bad consequences from these drugs. And we're beginning to try to understand what are the sorts of things that uh, incline people to have positive transformative experiences. And what are the ones that can be a risk for some people to have long-term bad consequences that can affect their lives, relationships, their sense of self and so forth. So I would say, you know, you know, rushing off and experimenting with psychedelics is not the message that I'm trying to communicate. I'm trying to say, we should study these drugs. We should learn as much as we can about them and about the different ways in which they can be administered to be more likely to bring about benefit than harm. And then the other big point that I wanna leave with is all the money that's being poured into the science and the business and the, um, uh, the public initiatives to try to get these drugs more available in certain kinds of ways has, has not been met with an equivalent amount of money being poured into understanding the ethics and the social policy and the law and the regulation of these drugs. And we can see what this has done with AI. So, you know, a lot of AI people are suddenly waking up and going, shoot, the genie's out of the bottle. These capacities are way bigger than we realized. And there's like, you know, new existential risks that are comparable to, you know, the threat of nuclear war. And um, we could very well wipe out our species with this technology we've created. And shoot, we probably should have brought some ethicists in, you know, a long time ago and laid that down at the foundation to make sure we were thinking about these potentialities. And I think psychedelics are a, breaking point where um, things are hurtling forward rather quickly and there's a lot of hype and there's a lot of people who don't really understand the risks involved both at the individual psychological level and at the social and political levels. These drugs have never been used en masse in the mainstream on anything like the scale that's being proposed ever in human history. Um, you know, they've been used in small communities here and there that have long established traditions and containers and rituals that they use to try to manage the effects of these drugs. But a mainstream capitalist society with um, you know, millions of people who get the idea somehow that these drugs are safe and should just be you know, used in a wanton manner, there, there could be massive, um, radically bad consequences and you know, a backlash and then the drugs go underground for another 50 years. So um, you know, I'm trying to start a research program that's focused precisely on this question of the ethics, law, policy, regulation of these drugs. And uh, I hope that people will be inclined to want to support this kind of research with, you know, 
some some fraction of the support that's been going into the science and the, the business end of things. I'm pretty sure they will, Brian. Thank you so very much for your time. And I look forward to catching you back in Oxford soon. Definitely. See you there. This was a lot of fun to talk with you. Bye. Thanks, Brian.